Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, we speak to Bash Redford and Michael Lavery, who run the renowned Forza Wine in South London. You'll see something come in one day and then by the end of the day it's gone. So from a customer's perspective, there isn't much fresher way of doing things. Things don't hang around in our restaurants, ever. Also on the programme, Monaco's Milan correspondent Ivan Carvalho heads to the Carnuntum region in Austria to speak to winemaker Dorli Muir. It has a very fine, dense uh, limestone soil, which gives a very special, very, I call it, feminine character to that wine. I really love it. Plus, we chat to Monocle's head of production, Sam Impey, about her favourite culinary spots in Los Angeles. All that on the menu on Monocle Radio. Like many other restaurants that have gone on to become staples of their city's scene, London's Forza Wine started life as a down-to-earth, cheerful pop-up. But even as the venture progressed and grew, moving first into a warehouse, then into proper bricks-and-mortar digs on a rooftop in Peckham, South London, much of the irreverent spirit of its beginnings has remained intact. After opening up a new location just down the road in Camberwell, founder Bash Redford and chef Michael Lavery have now debuted a sleek space inside the hallowed, brutalist halls of London's National Theatre. Bash, Michael and I caught up in the studio to talk about what makes the spirit of a restaurant and how it can evolve while staying true to itself. I started this thing as a as a supper club on a rooftop. It was illegal, not in that kind of like clandestine cool way. It was just like we didn't have a clue what we were doing. In a health and safety kind of way. <laughs> yeah, um, and planning and licensing and all that stuff that we is now sort of, you know, par for the course, but is we had no idea then. Uh, and that was in 2012. And cut a very long story short, I could probably fill a podcast with the entire story. Um, we did a number of different iterations of those pop-ups at which Michael was always a customer. We've known each other for a very, very long time. But in a kind of, you know, we weren't like ever best mates, I think it's fair to say. Still not. <laughs> um, I hate you. Uh, it's we, We'd sort of known each other for a long time. And I think the real transition and probably the most sort of poignant one to talk about now in terms of the question that you asked is the the bit where we went from supper club to restaurant. So we did actually have a bricks and mortar site, but as the sort of end of the supper club came along and it kind of drew a natural conclusion, but we had this very cool space in Peckham, which you may have been to. I kind of called Michael and said, hey, it's not going to be a supper club anymore. Uh, and he was because a real. I'd said no every time he said you want to come to the supper club to cook. I was like, no. He'd he'd been a real chef for a long time, and we'd never really sort of worked with real chefs. And um, well, we had, but you, you know, it was it was a bit of a different league. Um, and we opened it as a restaurant then, and that was in 2017. And yeah, it it, it kind of I guess it got real when Michael came on board. If, yeah, for want of a better way of putting it. Yeah. Let's talk about the new opening itself. Yeah. Um, because, as you say, you had to take different things into consideration going into that space. So yeah. From from the point of view of the kitchen, from the point of view of the space, um, what does it feel like to open a restaurant inside 
a cultural institution of the weight of the National Theatre, but in general, in a cultural institution where the audience is just completely different, it's passing by, some may know you, some may not know you. What were your first concerns and thoughts when you had to tackle that space? Well, I, th- I think the the first thing to know is that we had an incredibly long time to think about it. It took two years from the beginning of, would you like to do this, to we're opening the doors. So we had a really long time to sort of get used to the idea, but the National Theatre and, and cultural institutions, in my experience, just move at like a glacial pace. It is absolutely mind-blowing how... how, how I mean, even, you know, we, we have a... We, we were frustrated a, at the start. Yes. But now, we, once we understood it, it sort of makes sense. Yeah. It has to go slow. But they're just completely different industries. Yeah. You ah, take, like, the the, yeah. the, restaurant, the restaurant industry, the food industry, which is moving at insane pace, yeah. particularly if you're used to pop-ups and experimental spaces. Yeah. And then suddenly you've got a public cultural institution. Yeah. yeah. The two things are just on a completely our, different schedule. And other restaurants, we, the, the number of people who have to decide, we let's do this. Okay, I want to do it. Bash wants to do it, so we do it. Yeah. Now the number of stakeholders and the number of people involved in design meetings and the fact it's a Grade Two listed building and there's all there's, the number of considerations are. It makes sense that it moves slow, and mm. it's worth it in the end. We were really kind of a bit green to that. The the yeah. the, the idea of it and a bit naive at the start. Very naive at the start, and I actually think you know we're we're probably sort of breaking new ground to an extent. Obviously. John and Tom from the Marksman opened Lasden before us and they kind of, we know them really well and there was definitely an element of them saying like, you know, things take a while around here. <laughs> but it was it was very much kind of, it was a bit of a sort of culture shock. It was like, wow. So let's talk about the food because we've talked a lot about the logistics of running a restaurant which are fundamental and in many ways explain the the reasons why places open and where they open. But let's get stuck in. I tried the menu at the National Theatre and it was, as usual, delicious. And what I love about it is that it kind of nods to lots of things, but it's also just so satisfying. And one of the things that I always think makes for a great evening out is when you're not really thinking about what next forkful you're going to get. You kind of forget yourself in the experience of eating. Yeah. You're reaching out for another mor- morsel. You're talking to someone. The whole thing becomes really relaxed. But I ate some delicious cauliflower fritti. I ate mm. some delicious omelette. I ate some delicious green beans. Can you tell us how you got to the kind of food that you make and what makes the magic of the menu? The way I'd answer it probably isn't like a very podcast-friendly answer. But it's like... <laughs> We do what we can. We're with here the to spa- hear the we truth. do what we can with the space we have. The food is simple because that's our style. But also, the food has to be simple because there's a tiny space, and you have to serve. Like we've got a two-man kitchen in Peckham, a four-man kitchen in at the NT. But in Peckham, we sometimes serve like 480 people in a day with two chefs, with 12 dishes. So it has to be simple. It has to be quick. And because it's a snack menu, it has to be quick in that. Everything has to be ready in like four or five minutes because you can't order starters and then work on the main while that table are eating the starters. It has to be quick and it has to be Forza, basically. And when new staff join us, the hardest thing to learn, even if they're very experienced, is like what's Forza and what's not. And Mm -hmm. if someone suggests a dish and you're like, oh, that's not very Forza, and they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not entirely sure. But it's the ineffable kind of quality of brand that exists in a restaurant like any other 
commercial brand in the world. If I may, at the one of the one of the sort of founding principles that of what Michael sort of put in place in the kitchen, amongst lots of others, which are quite amusing, is a dish is as good as its worst ingredient. As in, that basically means that you can remove something from. If you can remove something from a dish, you should. Yeah, without, so, if you can remove something and it's good without it, why is it there? It's essentially make sure each dish has the minimal number of required ingredients. Yeah, and the quality is always like... It probably sounds a bit contrived in this context to sort of discuss quality of ingredient and quality of food and things like that, but it's literally the best you can get. And, you know, we just don't work with other stuff. It's not. It's just not a thing that we do. Working seasonal and menu changing whenever we need it to or weekly or regularly or daily means that you can work with high quality ingredients that are in season and that makes them more cost effective if something gets too expensive we just stop selling it yeah or you'll see something come in one day and then by the end of the day it's gone so from a customer's perspective there isn't much fresher way of doing things things don't hang around in our restaurants ever no but i think that's the most Italian way of describing an approach to cooking I have ever heard. You know, a lot of the times when we think about Italian inspiration, it's not really about flavours, it's not really necessarily about what it is that goes in a dish, but it's exactly that approach to ingredients where why put four ingredients in if you only need three? That's a very Italian mindset. So I wanted to ask you, because obviously the restaurant does have an Italian word in its name and it does reference Italianness. It started off with pizza. Mm. How is your approach to Italian cooking? What do you take from it? How much of an inspiration has come from it? And where in general does the inspiration come from? We, we now brand ourselves as a sort of Italian restaurant. Like we've added those words in. Yeah. Because... You're the most Italian person in the room, <laughs> not Bash or I. Uh, we're both from Manchester. I've got Irish parents. It's not. It's Italian in spirit, but it's Italian. Most of the Italian inspiration is based on the Italian restaurants we used to go to in Manchester. When I was a kid, I went to an Italian restaurant every Friday with my dad, and Bash served us. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> and what kind of what kind of food would you eat? It what, was what were your one favorite? where the the menu was laminated, and there was seventy five pasta options, and they were all tomato sauce with the other bit something else thrown in at the last minute. Uh, you could have various shapes of pasta with each sauce. Uh, we always we always got the same thing. It was basically very bad pizza, very bad pasta, and a selection of very bad secondi. But there was always a queue out the door, but and, there was after the door. and yeah. it was a nice place to be. It's the kind of Italian food that, as an Italian person, you would probably be like, that is not Italian food. But, but I then think a lot what, of people say that about our food. True. Well, 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 what, but what I think we both took from that, and we often reference it when, when asked about the, the history of Forza Win is, you know, what we took from that was very much the spirit and the idea and the conviviality and the fun. It was it was an incredible place. It was fun. Um, it was really of, fun. There's yeah. a lot of value in those places and in many ways I think those old school Italians oh, God, yeah, um, have kind of become more f- far and few in between because the, the, the modernisation of things means that those kind of places slightly stuck in the 80s. But the is, good ones are still there. But the, the good ones <laughs> are still there and there is a value in the kind of Italian food that they do yeah. and, and not, yeah, from an Ita- not from an, kind of a orthodox Italian point of view because again Italian cuisine is something that is very revered lots of yeah. people feel like they can't touch it yeah, yeah. Because... the authenticity thing and people get upset when things are chained things change and things like that yeah we're not really 
We don't worry about that too much. No, we don't worry about that. We don't take ourselves very seriously, I think is probably the, the, the sort of like thing that you could reference back to most of your question. It's, it, you know, we don't need to. You know, food's supposed to be fun. It's accessible. It's like I could put a plate of food in between us and, you know, that would that would ultimately break down a barrier and you would enjoy it and I would enjoy it and everybody would be fine. So but we do put chocolate on our tiramisu at Forza Win in Camberwell, not cocoa. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll accept it for this, okay. this one. Now, I've, I've broken a lot of my own orthodoxies down, but I want to ask you another Italian yeah. question. Where does the name actually come from? Mm. It's a very interesting and powerful name. Academic treaties have been written about why Silvio Berlusconi chose to call his mm. uh, political party Forza Italia mm. because the word Forza references football culture, it references winning, yeah. so it has a real power to it. So not why always, not Forza... positive power? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, just, I so just... with taking Berlusconi out of the picture, yeah. <laughs> why Forza win? Uh, <laughs> it's definitely a bash question. I would. I'd just like to state, for the record, that uh, it's nothing to do with anything Italian. The word forza, there are a lot of really, really negative connotations in Italy, and we have nothing to do with any of them. Um, we like the word. But the honest truth is that at the time that we were creating it, which is in 2012, uh, there was a hashtag on Twitter in those days, and it was hashtag FTW, and that was for the win. And... My very dear friend, James, who owns Pizza Pilgrims, who we started this with, we were in the pub trying to come up with this name for this sort of, you know, supper club that we created. I can't remember who it was. It was either him or it was his brother Tom or it was somebody else. I'm not entirely sure. It might have been me. Um, If you're not sure, it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) But somebody said... I, there was there was a lot of people shouting for the win, for the win, and it was a football game, and someone would turn around and was like for the win, there you go, and it just stuck from there. And actually, in lots of ways, it's been like the worst thing in the world because you try calling like an Italian supplier of a, a another product and saying hi, it's Bash from For the Win, they're just like I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> I just what what yeah. did you just say? What were those words? It means nothing in either it, language. It doesn't really. mean anything in either language, as you will no doubt attest. But it does have a power to it. Yeah. Um, we haven't talked about the wine. Ah. Um, you guys were fairly early adopters of yeah. natural wine in London and even beyond London, of course, now natural wine has almost become the standard in many yeah. new restaurants. Um, Where do you think that can go next? How do you keep changing and innovating from the point of view of the wine list as well? Do you want to, is there somewhere else to go? For me, for me personally, there was never a conscious decision to adopt natural wine as a way of, as a thing, and in inverted commas. The thing that we, we sort of adopted was, well, why would you have anything other than grape juice and grape skin in your wine? So we don't talk about a natural wine as a thing that we do at, either, at any of our sites. Yeah, we don't call ourselves a natural wine bar. We like never... Falls of Wine is not a natural wine bar. It's not really even a wine bar. So I think, yeah, I think that... I hope that the next place that natural wine goes is accessibility, you know? And, and actually sort of trying to eschew that kind of... I'm mindful of sounding offensive here, but like... You know, the, you, you know the person, I'm sure. You've been to enough restaurants where the kind of, you know, their MO is like, oh, you don't know about natural wine. 
and I'm raising my eyebrows for the record, but like, I hope that the next direction that it goes in, and there are a few people in the industry who are working towards that. I hope the direction that it goes in is accessibility, both in terms of price and understanding. But I think also that it has to prevail because it is just better for the planet. There is no two ways about that. Nobody can, you know, monoculture is, is on its way out and ultimately natural wine is, is good for that. Next up on the menu, we venture to eastern Austria to meet one of the promising names in the country's wine industry. Dolly Muir has long been an active promoter of her nation's wines and has emerged in recent years as a gifted winemaker. Today, on her estate in the Carnuntum region, located at the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains, she works to raise the profile of the local Austrian red grape Blaufrankisch, a varietal that has been somewhat forgotten by drinkers. Monocle correspondent Ivan Carvalho paid a visit to Muir's cellars to learn about her work and her efforts to get the word out on the native grapes of Austria. It's hard to find a better advocate for Austrian wine today than Dorley Muir. For years, the winemaker has been active, organizing events for the nation's producers, supporting the famous makers of Austria's best-known white grape, Gruner Bettliner, while also working on her own vineyards east of Vienna, in the Konuntum region, close to the Slovakian border. My grandmother, who was born in 1896, grew up with her aunt here in this village of Brellenkirchen. And uh, when she moved back to her home village after World War I, her aunt gave her, as a wedding gift, a tiny vineyard here on the Spitzerberg. It was 0.17 hectares, really very, very tiny. But this is how my family, we were like cereal and sugar beet farmers, uh, came into winemaking because we had this tiny vineyard in a village about 12 kilometers away. And this is how it became something like a hobby or a weekend activity for my parents. And when I was a child, to me it was each time a big thing when we went to that village here because here is a mountain while in my home village it's completely flat and this mountain is 300 meters high much later I learned that there is higher mountains too but for me this was already something really really big Now Dorley, um, tell me this area that we're in has a special uh, significance because it's the, the end of uh, two mountain ranges Yes, it's the end or maybe the beginning of two mountain ranges. Both the Alps and the Carpathians meet here. And there is just a very small corridor of about 20, 25 kilometers between the two. And this corridor is essential for our terroir and our climate because we have a lot of wind here. Like 300 days of wind a year means that it's very dry conditions, um, very little rain, and the little rain is right down immediately by the wind. So it's quite extreme conditions for wine growing. It makes very dense, intense red wines, but that are not heavy, that are quite balanced in alcohol. It's a very unique style of red wines that we can grow here. So I grew up here in this uh, Pannonian uh, plain uh, as a daughter of farmers, and later on I studied languages. 
Uh, and uh, later on, I started my own PR company that is called Wine and Partners. And I was working in uh, uh, communication about wine and culinary things. But then I eventually I wanted to make my own wine first in Italy. But then I decided after a detour to Portugal, I decided to go back to my grandmother's place. And this was in 2002 when I did my first vintage here on Spitzerberg. And now here, when we're talking about the, the grapes, um, this is a very local grape that's known in Austria, Blaufränkisch. Explain to me the, the appeal, the attraction um, of this red wine. Blaufränkisch is a very interesting grape. It is a red wine grape, but it has a lot of freshness and um, elegance and uh, light-footedness that you would maybe expect or find uh, in some uh, white wines as well. And this makes it very unique. So you have all those aromas of red berries, you have nice tannins, you have the density, but it still has in the end a very fresh and refreshing uh, function. And that's really very unique for Blaufränkisch. Though the red grape varietal Blaufränkisch is not a household name outside Austria, it comes with an impressive pedigree. In the 1800s, the wine was already found in well-to-do restaurants from Berlin to Paris. Yet the vineyards where the grape grows have suffered due to the location at the crossroads of Europe, where politics and conflict have often interfered with the harvest. I think we have a very long history of uh, red wine growing and of Blaufränkisch growing in the region, but we don't have documents on it because uh, this uh, eastern part of Austria was uh, often destroyed. It has always been the war zone whenever a tribe wanted to go to conquer Vienna. This was the part of the, of the country that was destroyed and burned down. So all the documents usually were in churches and so on, and they disappeared over the year, centuries. And the last big catastrophe was like World War II, after World War II, the eastern part of Austria was occupied by Russians that uh, liked to drink and to party and to destroy things as well. So um, we have very little bottles that are older than 45. And then also our closest city here, where many, probably a lot of documents are or were uh, uh, collected, uh, is Bratislava. And we were cut off Bratislava for more than 50 years by an iron curtain. So Eager to promote the lesser-known Blaufränkisch, Dorle Muir has also sought winemaking practices that are not as common here, borrowing even a technique popular with winemakers in Portugal. So we want uh, the wines to be very fine, very elegant, very silky, and from our experience, the best way to make silky tannins and finesse into your wine is that you do the, the extraction, the maceration by foot trotting. So, of course, uh, we have a lot of experience that we have taken from Portugal, but it's also done in Burgundy. And, uh, and over the, year, the years, we have really experienced that it's, it's the best way during harvest. So we take off our shoes and socks and we we walk on the uh, on the whole bunches for about two hours to make sure that really every little berry is squeezed and the juice comes out and 
starts to extract the aromas, the tannins, the color, the every every character from the skins because that's where the taste sits. Okay, uh, Dorley, so this uh, one is your uh, single vineyard Blaufränkisch. Just give me some, some details on this wine. Yes. So this is a Blaufränkisch from a single vineyard that is called Obere Roterd. So it's one part, one plot on the Spitzerberg, but a very interesting one. It has a very fine, dense uh, limestone um, soil, which uh, gives a very special, very, I call it feminine character to that wine. I really love it. And uh, I like it's very convenient because it's the, the vineyard that was owned by my grandmother before. So it's a, a very like female heritage line in here as well. But it's one of my most emotional vineyards, I would say. And um, I observe it very closely and uh, I like it a lot. Now, a question in terms of Blaufränkisch, if um, people don't recognize the grape and you need to describe it, what other grapes maybe um, is it similar to, to kind of give them an understanding? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Blaufränkisch has the same great-great-grandmother as uh, Pinot Noir. So there is a relationship. And I think um, you can detect the uh, freshness and maybe also the, the red berry aromas uh, that you find in Pinot, add some cherry to it, add maybe some canela to it and some cumins. That's the, the, the kind of spice that you find very often in Blaufränkisch, especially from Spitzerberg. That's the aroma components of uh, Blaufränkisch. And on the palate, you could also have some, like a mix of of Pinot, maybe together with some Sangiovese and a little bit of maybe even Syrah. So if you if you try to uh, imagine a blend of those three varietals, you will come quite close to Blaufränkisch. Dorlimir's efforts to raise awareness about Blaufränkisch, both at events with fellow producers and at private tastings in her cellar, have paid off of late as sommeliers at leading restaurants and wine shops from New York to Zurich are making more inquiries about this refreshing red grape. It's a testament to Muir's two decades of work to ensure Austria isn't only known for Gruner Bettliner. For Monocle in Austria, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Up next, it's time for the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis. Europe's supply of local olive oil has almost run out and is set for more shortages following a second year of damaged harvests due to extreme weather in the region. In order to keep up with demand, the world's largest producer, Filippo Berrio, is having to import stock from South America. According to the International Olive Council, global production is expected to fall short of its target by around 20%. Whiskey found hidden behind a cellar door in Scotland's Blair Castle may be the oldest in existence, according to experts. Around 40 bottles of the national drink were discovered late last year, but new research suggests the contents date back to the early 1800s. It is even thought to be the same whisky tasted by Queen Victoria of England during a trip to the castle in 1844. And finally, Sotheby's has this week presented their most valuable wine collection to ever hit the market. 
It belongs to Taiwanese entrepreneur Pierre Chen and contains 25,000 bottles of rare international wines which have been accumulated over a 40-year period. Experts at the auction house expect the collection to fetch a record $50 million when it hits the docks. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Kiara. Thanks, Monica. You are with Monocle Radio. Every city has its signature dishes. But in the case of a melting pot such as Los Angeles, many of the culinary highlights come from around the world, and in particular from across the border in Mexico, from delicious tacos to excellent tostadas. Burritos have long been a staple in the LA food scene, and few people can lay a claim to making a better one than Tyler Gugliotta. Monocle's Sam Impey spoke with Chef Gugliotta at his restaurant, Baran's 2239, in Hermosa Beach. Hi, I'm Chef Tiger Gliotta. I'm the chef owner of Barron's 2239 in Hermosa Beach and the chef owner of Tigres Fuego in Redondo Beach. Uh, we started Barron's about seven years ago. Uh, me and uh, two partners of mine, we wanted to open a somewhat border-free concept, uh, locally sourced, globally inspired and um, just kind of have fun with uh, the freedom to cook and pull from different cuisines and um, ethnicities and um, influences. Basically, uh, the Michelin Guide had left Los Angeles for, I think, about a decade. And so the first year they included Los Angeles again, they changed to just a California Guide. And um, I got back from a vacation, and then uh, I think the first day back, uh, we, I got a call and saying we had put it into the guide, and it was exciting for sure. During COVID, it was uh, a hard time for everybody. Restaurants were struggling, a lot of places closed. Many places had to like reinvent themselves. And so we started off just doing like to-go sandwiches at lunchtime, and then we introduced like, um, like a multiple course dinner to go, and then we introduced breakfast burritos on the weekend, and then the burritos just kind of took on a life of their own. And um, once COVID was over, or once places were able to reopen and have uh, indoor dining again, it had like, a, like its own following. So uh, we just wanted to keep that around, and, and it just grew to be way more than I ever thought it was gonna be. There's a couple of secret ingredients, but for the most part, there's nothing like super unique about the ingredients. I think a big part of it is just the ratio, the potato, egg, cheese, meat ratio. We source really good tortillas from a very well-known um, place called um, Burritos La Palmas, but um, they have a tortilleria in Boyle Heights called El Mijorado. So a really good tortilla, high-quality eggs, and then the ratio, and then we um, we have a secret seasoning for our potatoes. And then our, our salsas are all made here. They're just well-balanced, and then we make our chorizo in-house. So those are all a few, a few little things. Right now, you actually probably have to order them a day or so in advance, which is, was not our original intention. We tried to make it so people could pre-order so that they wouldn't have to wait in a line, which works. But um, it, now we have hundreds of pre-orders, and so we, we have to cut it off at some point. So we actually, starting tomorrow, we are now going to be offering the same exact burritos at our sister restaurant just to help supply the demand. 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're super happy with the situation currently. It allows us to get have more staff here, and it helps even out our costs as far as food and labor go. But yeah, I mean, a, a, a standalone breakfast burrito place is 100% a possibility, yeah. Before I opened the Tigres Fuego in Redondo, uh, for years I've been wanting to do like some kind of a Mexican concept in like the Netherlands or in Spain or something like that. Just because I don't know, I don't feel like it's probably not the most well-represented cuisine over there. And then as far as um, here in the States, I think uh, San Diego would be a good option. I know that's still in California and then maybe like somewhere in um, Texas or Oregon or something like that. But no, no, no plans currently. I kind of treat it like two different businesses. It's a kind of its own entity. It's almost like a pop-up here in the mornings on the weekends. And it's honestly bringing a lot of attention to dinner as well. People that have not been here for dinner, they'll like, oh, I didn't know you guys do dinner. Like, oh yeah, we've been doing dinner, but we're actually in the Michelin Guide for dinner. And also like we've gotten plenty of accolades for dinner. We're super busy for dinner. So it's all positive. I don't want to be known as the burrito guy. That's not, that's not my intention, but I'm more than happy to sell a quality product and in the morning and on the weekends. And it makes it so we don't have to do brunch and, and then continue doing our, you know, kind of new American, California, global kind of thing at nighttime. You know what I mean? So just two totally different things, but um, obviously the, the passion is always going to be more focused towards dinner. But I'm super happy with the situation and I'm glad that everyone just joined it. And I am very glad to say that Sam is joining me in the studio now, having left the heat and burritos of Los Angeles behind. Welcome, Sam. Thank you for having me. I'd like to say that I did leave the heat behind. Unfortunately, on my most recent trip, it was when the weather was actually worse than what it was here in the UK. So uh, <laughs> I'm just very glad that you made the effort then. <laughs> yeah, um, it was a short trip. It was only four days this time. So I should probably explain. I married to an Angelino. My wife um, has grown up there and has moved around different parts of... When I say LA, I mean LA County. So that goes all the way from Malibu all the way down to Long Beach. And... I've been visiting, seeing family, friends. We used to have an apartment in Long Beach and we have been together for nine years now. So that's nine years worth of popping over, eating lots of different varieties of food um, and visiting all kinds of different places. So this trip was quite short, only four days, only there for a wedding. So it was like, okay, what do we hit up? What, you know, what what are the most important things? I've got to say it was... uh, very taco and burrito heavy, as you would imagine, um, being in Southern California. Um, I also recently, before this trip, was very lucky to be shown around Grand Central Market. I know you spent some time in um, LA and Grand Central Market is in downtown LA. If you want a snapshot of the food scene of LA, go and visit there. It's a fantastic episode of Food Neighbourhoods that I recently did, so you can go to the website um, and check that out. And we will often go there and get very different dishes. So there's an 
Egg Slut, I think, began there, mm-hmm. uh, which is very brunch heavy, which is very LA brunch. Um, so my wife will go and grab something there whilst I go to Anna Maria's and get my favourite tacos, you know, and it's like 11 o'clock in the day. So why not have lunch and have brunch at the, the, at the same time? There's also a, a real flexibility around what constitutes breakfast food and what doesn't oh, yeah. anyway. So definitely. <laughs> you're free there. So if you're visiting LA, that's definitely a place that you have to go and visit. Um, I can't it, can't think of a food that isn't there, to be honest. You know, you could go for breakfast, lunch and dinner and drinks. There's oysters, there's um, noodles. You just go and check out the Food Neighbourhoods episode. You'll get an idea of the place. If you're also in downtown Los Angeles, then you should probably go and check out Hilltop Coffee, which is a fantastic. So there's one in Inglewood, there's one in downtown LA, and there's a couple more. Issa Rae, the comedian, actor, she's behind it. There's always a queue out the door. And I don't think it's just because her name is also behind it. It's a great coffee shop, one to definitely try out. And I'm going to rattle through these because... And please, please. It's just, I mean, it was this really short trip. And not to say that I did all of these on the four-day trip, but just this year alone, I've managed to squeeze in quite a few. And I think they kind of really sum up the food scene there and just LA as a whole. I think the food scene mirrors, you know... Southern California, California as a whole, the landscape, one minute you're on the beaches in Venice Beach and then two hours later you're up in the snow-covered mountains of Big Bear. And I think it's just so, there's so many varieties of landscapes and people and of course you're going to see that in the food and it's fantastic. So, okay, we go from downtown Los Angeles and then we're going to go to West Hollywood, Fairfax area. When I went uh, recently, back in May, I visited... I've been at, you know, Monaco, we're always busy, we're always running around. Quickly popped in somewhere to get some food. I went to Burger She Wrote. It is Excellent. Wagyu <laughs> smashed burgers and they are incredible. And it's just, you know, completely unassuming, fairly cheap, but quality food and absolutely delicious. And also, what the name is excellent, so why not go and visit it? Then you go slightly further down, you go to Inglewood. Now, when you were in L.A., Something that is very, very LA. Roscoe's. Did you go and check it out? I actually haven't. <gasps> okay. So it's Roscoe's uh, Chicken and Waffles. Barack Obama was pictured there because obviously it's a big vote winner. My, my mistake. Exactly. I feel, how could I? I've always thought of it as uh, Southern, but I think the way that they like to describe themselves is Californian soul food. So you've got your chicken, you've got your waffles, you've got your maple syrup drizzled all over it, you've got your mac and cheese. Mwah, absolutely delightful. <laughs> um, and Roscoe's is very LA. So you've got them in Inglewood, you've got it, one in Long Beach, Hollywood, Anaheim. And then we're going to go further south. We're going to okay. go to Hermosa Beach, where we were just at a Barron's. Barron's 2239, Chef Tyler Gugliotta. He is a fantastic chef, as you probably just heard in that piece. Fine dining restaurant. We on a trip recently, we're very fortunate to enjoy lots of lovely dishes and some <laughs> incredible wine uh, with some friends. And it was before a beaut- or after the interview. Uh, it- that the interview actually had to happen uh, the day before because we knew what was coming. So um, that was a beautiful restaurant. And obviously they had to kind of pivot during the lockdown. And these burritos are something else. 
but you have to order in advance. And so the moment we got off the plane, we had had that morning, somebody had already gone to pick up the burritos for us. And they're very good. You could quite easily spend hundreds of pounds because you just get them for all of your friends. Um, Distribute them down the street. Well, no, that's the thing. You quite easily, you know, say you're paying like 15, 20 bucks uh, per, you know, per burrito. And then you get them for all of your family and your friends because it's it's quite tricky to get hold of them. Um, it, it's quite easy to rack up the money, but they are worth it. So go and check those out. Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, I know where I will be heading on the next trip. I was only there for three weeks, but now I feel like I have a list for six months. And it's all thanks to you, Sam. So very much appreciated. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. The programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Day Drinking by Bilderbuch. Thanks for listening and until next week. <laughs> <laughs>